This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for today is from John chapter 12, verses 27 through 43. You can find that on pages um, 898-899 in your pew Bible. John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that that he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us this morning. Uh, If you're new, um, I'm excited you're with us as well. Hey, on your way in, you got this uh, handout. Uh, We talked about this last week, uh, but as a reminder, we wanted to pass it out one more time. And if you missed last week, uh, it's about Church Center. Church Center is a Uh, Basically, the new way we're going to be communicating here at Redeemer, so we invite you to sign up for it. Sign up for it by scanning this first QR code, and um, this will be the primary way that we're going to be communicating with you and sharing what's going on here at Redeemer. Um, And then after you sign up for it, download the app. That's the second QR code to the right. Download that app. Um, I promise you that won't be an app that you'll I don't know if I'm the only one. I download an app. I think I'm going to use it eight months later. I'm like, I've never used this app. And then I just delete it and move on. Um, we, our staff won't be using that app this way. We're going to use this a lot. 
We're going to share events, our whole church calendar. It's going to be the way you engage with your community group, the way you give and uh, check in with Redeemer Kids, all those sorts of things we're going to do in one one spot. So basically everything you need to know uh, in terms of getting involved and what's going on is in one spot on that app. So download that, get involved, see what's going on. Particularly those of you who do automatic withdrawal, we're asking you to cancel your CCB withdrawal and transfer over to Church Center. Would you mind uh, doing that this week? Just as a helpful reminder again, please please try to tackle that this week. Um, If that's something that uh, interest you, maybe you haven't been doing that yet, that automatic withdrawal, we invite you to go ahead and download the app and it's pretty self-explanatory. You can get that set up pretty easily. So uh, download that, sign up for that and all those things. All right, <clears throat> let me pray for us and we're gonna jump in. Father, we, Jesus, we come before you. We come before you this morning um, because you're big enough you're worthy enough, you're glorious enough, you are immeasurably worth it. You counted your life worth it to lay down your life for us and you are immeasurably worth a life of pursuit. You are worth all of our efforts. So God, this morning, um, would you show that to us? Would you show us the value and the beauty of who you are? Would you reveal it to us? This, is, this isn't information that I'm asking for. I'm praying that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our affections and our desires, that we would see your immeasurable worth this morning. Would you give us that kind of sight this morning? I ask in your name, amen. Okay. Okay, so... Hey, next week, we're gonna begin a a new series. We're gonna jump into the Sermon on the Mount. And what I wanna do this morning as I was thinking about the week before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, what I would love to do with this sermon is sort of grease the wheels. What I wanna do is kind of like help us step into next week and this fall well, because we're actually gonna camp out in the Sermon on the Mount all through this next fall. And as I've been kind of like anticipating uh, us jumping into the Sermon on the Mount and all the things that that would entail, I've been kind of anticipating something. Uh, I, I, I've been anticipating something happening that's going to happen to every single one of us at some point this fall. I just, I'm just thinking this is gonna happen to all of us in this room. As we're walking through Jesus's most powerful sermon, his detailed instructions of how his kingdom works and what it means to pursue his kingdom as we gather month after month and this fall and hear Jesus telling us what his kingdom is like, giving us instructions on our sex lives, giving us instructions on addressing like the anger problems that we have, how we use our tongues, how we handle our money, how we respond to criticism, how we carry anxiety, all the things that we do for the praise of other people, right? So that people will like us or all those kinds of things. All of these things that, you know, like we all struggle with. Like we're gonna jump into all of them and so much more, things that every one of us struggles with. I wonder how many times we're gonna be pressed. Like I wonder how many times we're gonna come up against this spot in us where we're like, ugh, and and we're gonna have to face like a decision. Like Jesus's words aren't coming neutral. We'll be faced with a decision and it'll be more than a decision to like agree with it. It, It'll be more than a decision of, um, trying to decide whether you think that it's true or untrue, it'll require more from you than even believing it. 
I, I think, like, I, I'm not sure if the biggest decision in front of us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount will be whether you agree with Jesus's words or not. I actually think the most difficult part will be the question of whether his words are weighty enough or like big enough or beautiful enough or, uh, or, or like significant enough to orient all the other things going on in your life around them. Like, I think it'll be that kind of a decision. So here, here's what I'm kind of curious about. In those moments that all of us are gonna face, like we're all, I'm imagining all of us at some point this fall, if not dozens of times this fall, sitting in these chairs, as we come up against that moment when you face Jesus's words and how um, he's telling you to pursue his kingdom, like what it's going, like what is it that's going to orient you around those words? Like what is it that is going to orient you to what you do and what you do not do in your life? What is it that like sorts out what you're, what you're gonna fail at in your life and what's like worth and required of you to go hard after in your life? When we face Jesus's words this fall and they like bump up against like other things in our lives, other pursuits in our lives, other loves and desires and habits and comforts and control and even other things that like are good that are going on in your week. What is the place where that's gonna like sort those things out for you? Like what's the thing that's gonna sort them out? What's the thing that's going to like order them correctly in your life? What's big enough to kind of come in and swoop up all of those things and all the things in your life and like hold them and sort them out for you? What's big enough to do that? Like it'll be more than just trying to add something to your life. What gathers them up for you? You see, without this sort of thing that can like grab Jesus's words and orient them toward a life purpose, I'm wondering if they just get like filed away, of like filed away in that list of things that you know you should be doing or like filed away with the kinds of things that you could be doing or like just agreeing with these things, but you don't have a place for them to actually like land in your life to like really make contact with the real things of your week. So this morning, I want us to consider what it would be like to have something big enough for ourselves to orient ourselves to what Jesus is gonna be telling us this fall. I want us to consider what it would be like to have something that is big enough to orient what Jesus says matters. To get us into this conversation, I want us to dive into John 12. And um, I, I'll have four points that I'll walk us through uh, with John 12. So if you've closed your Bibles, open them back up to John's gospel, uh, chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a story of glory. It's a story of glory. That's my first point. A story of glory. So John 12 is a very interesting passage. It gives us a window into uh, a human hardwiring that every one of us has and how each of us works. In this section of John's gospel, we see that Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. Um, he's just arrived for the final time and something pretty shocking and odd happens in this passage. Now, this happens right after he's raised Lazarus from the dead and right before he takes his disciples and goes up to the upper room and washes their feet and tells them how he's gonna die for their sins and they have communion. He's turned it over to the authorities and he dies. So it happens right between those two really, really popular stories. And my hunch is, if you're familiar with the Gospels, 
Um, because this one lands in that part of the gospel, you may not be too familiar with this passage. But here's the scene. Right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's among the crowds, and he's in the center of attention, like everybody's attention. And for some reason, Jesus right now thinks now's a good time to pray out loud to his heavenly Father. And he prays out loud, and he says, Father, glorify your name. And immediately we read, a response booms out. Then a voice from heaven came, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. <laughs> Shocking. People think it's thunder. People think it's an angel. This voice from heaven, it's recorded only a couple of times happening in Jesus's ministry. Crazy scenario. Put yourself in this scene. Like, when was the last time you observed somebody praying for something from God and then just like audible voice from heaven booms down from heaven? Like, pretty crazy scenario. And we might be like tempted in this moment to go, golly, if you ever needed a sign that you're standing in the presence of God, man, if I experienced that, my, like obviously my day would change. My whole life would be changed, right? Like we might be tempted to think, man, the crowd would be just dumbfounded by the presence and power of God. People just standing around that didn't even know what was going on. People just walking by would instantly be changed and permanent followers of Jesus in this scenario, Right? Not exactly. Not exactly. John tells us something quite shocking. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So here we have people who are following Jesus around. They're listening to his teachings. They're seeing all these miraculous signs. They're seeing him heal, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. There are people there that saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Now they hear God audibly speak from heaven to Jesus and they still do not believe. <laughs> yeah, some of them didn't believe, but it gets worse. It gets worse. John tells us that there were others who actually did believe in Jesus, yet they wouldn't follow him. Look at verse 42. Many, even of the authorities, so he's saying there's many people beyond that, there's even authorities, people in power, of higher ranking people who believed in Jesus, but, but, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. All right, let's review. So they followed him around. They've listened to his teachings. They saw all these otherworldly miracles that Jesus is performing along the way. They heard God's audible voice from heaven speaking to Jesus, and they even believed in what he said. They even believed in all the words that he taught, but none of them, none of this was gonna be enough for them to actually step out and follow him. None of this would be enough to tip the scales of a life devoted to following him. How come? How come? What was so important that they could look straight into the face of the Son of God and turn away? John says it was for fear of the Pharisees. See, these so-called authorities of the Jewish community had the power to, like, as bouncers to bounce you out of the, the synagogue, it says. They had that kind of power to bump people out of the synagogue. So getting kicked out of the synagogue wasn't just like a, like a, a little thing. Like the synagogue actually was the place of uh, where, their, where their, their jobs were tied to it. Their reputations were tied to synagogue life. So getting kicked out of the synagogue would have been seen as like unthinkable. It would have been a death sentence for their job, their reputations, their income, um, their position. It's not a small thing to consider. And 
I've been trying to wrap my mind around trying to get us to feel that because there really isn't a comparison in our culture or anything. Like, I'm trying to think, man, I didn't get kicked out of my neighborhood when I followed Jesus. Uh, I didn't get kicked out of my school. Think about, like, the Amish community, right? The Amish community has a shared belief system that dictates that they live very similarly, right? They all look very similar because of their belief structure. If you lived in the Amish community and changed your beliefs and therefore necessarily changed the way you lived, it'd be like oil and water in that community. They would help you leave. You would have to rebuild your life. That's what they're facing here. This is a huge deal. It would have been a big deal to confess to follow Jesus and be kicked out of the synagogue. So we may like, like not want to be too harsh on them in this spot, but what's crazy about this story is John actually won't let them off the hook. John doesn't let them off the hook because through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, John actually records for us what's going on in their insides. John flips the light on to their true motives and the hidden places of their hearts at this very moment. Why are we seeing this hypocrisy in them? Why are we seeing them saying that they're believing something but not following up with action? Why are we seeing this gap? They're willing to say they believe in Jesus, but they're not willing to voice it and choose to orient their lives toward it. We've already established that they fear the Pharisees. So what was going on? Was it the fear in them? Yeah, it was at a surface level. At a first glance, it was fear. But if you go a little deeper, it was really about something they loved. It was something they loved. Look at verse 43. 43 tells us they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Glory. They loved it. They loved glory. They wanted it. They craved it. Their drive was for man's glory. And it was so powerful that it blinded them to the glory that was standing in front of them, the son of God himself. Every one of us are glory chasers. That takes me to my second point. All of us love glory. That's my second point. With a brief comment on what's going on in these people's hearts, God or John is actually letting us know something about our humanness, like what makes us tick, what, what's inside of us. We all love glory. God created us to look for it and to love it. And when we find it, we pursue it. Every one of us loves glory. Now take note here. You guys heard this whole, this whole section of scripture read aloud. Let's take stock. Everyone in this scene, including Jesus himself, the son of God is pursuing something. And that something is glory. Jesus wants his life to matter for the glory of God. The father says he's going to ensure that he gets glory. The crowd is gathering around Jesus, hoping to see another display of his glory. The Pharisees are lording their glory over others. And some people are trying with all their might to hold on to what little glory they have. It's everywhere. What is going on with glory? What is glory? When the New Testament talks about glory, it's speaking about the worth or like the value of something. It's talking about its intrinsic worth. Or another way to think about this is when you hear the word glory, think about weight. Like think about the weight of something in your life. Or another way to think about it is its significance, and it's dense and it's powerful, it's solid, it's weight. Think about a bowling ball and a tennis ball getting tossed into a waterbed. What moves to what? What moves to what? 
the tennis ball moves to wherever the bowling ball is landed because the bowling ball has more glory. The reason why God acted and created the world was to display his own glory, his own worth, his value, so his creatures could take it in, so we could observe it, so we could experience it, so that we could actually like make sense out of it and rejoice and enjoy the immeasurable worth and weightiness of their creator. It's what we were wired to pursue, to look for, to value in. It's what we want. Like we are moved by him. This is what we mean when we say as a church that we live for the glory of our God in our mission statement. Our mission statement is we exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples. But why? What sorts that out for us? Why is that a singular passion for us? Why do we do that? The second part of our mission statement, because we live for the glory of God. We want him to be seen as weighty and significant and powerful and the most significant, most beautiful thing in our lives. And we want others to be changed by him, to see that as well. It orients everything we do as a church. Why do we say that? Like, why do we want that? Why do we pursue this? Like, what's our motivation factor? Why do we value the glory of God? The deepest reason our church values the glory of God is because God values and lives for the glory of God. We are passionate about God's glory because God is passionate about God's glory. The Bible presents us with a God who glorifies in himself. He doesn't share it with anybody. He glorifies just in himself. Don't miss the emphasis on God's own commitment to his own glorification. The text doesn't just say that Jesus prayed for God to glorify God. He's, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. It also tells us that God the Father responds and says, I have and I will. I have and I will. The Father himself says in verse 28, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. God glorifies God. God lives for the glory of God and made in his image, we're hardwired for his own glory. We're hardwired to pursue and live for glory, for something bigger than ourselves. And if not for his glory, for another glory. You see, we are glory junkies as people. Like we can't get enough of it and we have to have it. It's, we, we love it. It's why you watch the slam dunk competi competition. It's why you watch Home Run Derby. It's why you watch the great British baking show when they make the seven layered triple chocolate mousse, whatever, and then they win. Like you love that. You love Iron Chef where they take, you know, um, ingredients you've never seen before to make a dish you've never heard of to make something that you can't even afford to try yourself. Like you love it when they do those kinds of things. It's why I drove last summer across the country to look across a mountain range and why I'll do it again. It's why I've woken up on many occasions, my kids, before the sunrise, it's early, early morning, and we drive in the country and find a good spot and watch the sunrise. What motivates us to those sorts of things? You're hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. It's inescapable. It's literally created into our genes. So let me ask you, when you experience something that's glorious in your life, does it leave you the same? 
Like, what does it do to your insides? Does it leave you where you're at? No, it does something to us. Like it makes us want to chase that experience of being in the presence of something grander. It makes us, it right sizes us. It makes us want to be drawn up to something uh, uh, that like engages our imaginations of what we could be. It draws us into something that's bigger, that matters, and we want that feeling to last. And Paul says, that's how God created us. Paul tells us in his Romans, in Romans, uh, in his letter to the Romans, chapter two, verse six, Paul contrasts two kinds of people. There's two kinds of seekers that he's addressing. He says there's some people who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Man, like even just hearing that, like some of us are like, oh, that doesn't sound like you're supposed to do that. But Paul says there's another group of people. People more, let's see. Yeah, he says there's another group of people who are self-seeking. So you got two options. There's those who seek to be more glorious and then mortal, or you can be self-glorifying. To the first group of people, Paul tells us that he will get, God will give eternal life. And for the second group of people, there will be wrath and fury. You catch that? Like God doesn't oppose glory seeking. <laughs> he actually commends it. He actually, more than that, he rewards it. He says, go after it. Like if you seek glory, I'll give you eternal life. Now, of course, of course, like there's options. You can seek after and pursue the glory in God or self-glory. And we are hardwired for glory. Then what does it mean to pursue the glory we're created for? What does it mean to pursue the glory that God actually created us for? That takes me to my third point. Uh, the glory or this glory is a person. Glory is a person. One of the takeaways from this passage in John 12 is seeing that this impulse for glory is so big that it can determine the way you respond to Jesus. Like inside of you, your drive for glory is so strong that it will actually disorient you or orient you away from Jesus himself. Like when was the last time you were pressed? Perhaps you were like, something in your life wasn't going well and you cried out to God asking him to like show himself to you, asking him to do something to prove himself to you. Perhaps like you're in a, in a jam or you're tempted to think that God, um, if he would just simply appear to you in this moment, like in some, some kind of powerful display, if he would even like maybe just like audibly speak to you or prove himself to you or get your attention, then finally you would believe or finally you would be comforted in this, this moment where you're discomforted, this moment where you're um, you're, you're, you're distressed and right there, right there, you're asking for the things that are happening in John 12. Right there, you're, you're asking for the very things that God demonstrated about himself in John 12. And what was their response? What was their response? And I wonder how many of them walked away from this powerful encounter with Jesus wishing they could see the glory of God. <laughs> like, we'd be like, you're crazy. It's all over the place. There's an interesting statement here though that sticks out. Like, but before we get there, where are you looking to gain a view of God's glory? So many of us are asking God to show up, reveal yourself, speak to me, like do something powerful to get my attention. Where do you look to get 
a view of the glory of God. If we say we live for the glory of God, then it's kind of important that we know where, to like, where are we gonna set our bearing? And in verse 41, we get it. This is right after John quotes Isaiah. Put your eyes on verse 41. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Where do you set your bearing? Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, who is the his in this sentence? And what on earth could he mean by he saw his glory? What is that? That's important for us. Who is the his and what is the glory? The context of this is quoted in Isaiah, just above. It's talking about Isaiah's quote. So looking at that quote is gonna help us answer these questions. So in verses 39 to 40, those, that, that section quotes Isaiah 6.10. Now, if you remember back to when we were walking through Isaiah last year, it was quite a while ago, we were in Isaiah 6. What you get in Isaiah 6 is this calling of Isaiah, this, uh, this calling and this commissioning in an unbelievable grand vision of the splendor and holiness of God on his throne. You get Isaiah looking at the glory of God on his throne. He's literally seeing God's glory face to face. And John tells us that when Isaiah saw God's glory, at that point, the prophet saw the glory of Jesus. So in verse 41, when it says his glory, the his is God on his throne. And what does it mean when he saw God's glory? When Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne, he saw the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Jesus himself, who is the glory of God. Jesus embodies the glory of God the Father. He literally is the glory that comes from God. And John makes this unmistakably clear to us in his gospel. He actually kicks off his gospel telling us this. John 1.14, he says, the word who is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father who is full of grace and truth. The most glorious thing about God is that He's so completely, fully self sufficient and so full of His glory that He overflows with grace and truth. That's what this is telling us grace and truth embodied in the person of Jesus. That's good news for us because Paul and James both called Jesus the Lord of glory. Paul says, the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So think back to that bowling ball analogy. If we took like a bucket of tennis balls and like threw them on the water ball or on the wet, water bed, blah, threw them on the water bed, where do all the tennis balls gather? If the bowling ball's on the water bed and you took a bucket of tennis balls and threw it on there, where do they gather? Here's what this is saying. God's glory, his honor, his esteem, his mind-blowing perfection, his comprehensive value is embodied in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where God's glory gathers up. That's, that's what contains the glory of God. Now to live for and to pursue and to chase after and love this glory of God means to love Jesus to pursue him, to be gathered up in pursuing Jesus. But this kind of glory, this Jesus demands a pursuit, right? 
It demands being gathered up into it. The glory in Jesus then is to see him as weighty. It means being gathered to him. This glory demands a pursuit. That's my final, my final point here. This glory demands our pursuit. And it works like this. It's pretty simple. To love God is to pursue glory. If we love the glory that comes from God, who is Jesus, then that must translate into a lifelong, passionate, committed, ambitious pursuit of him. A passionate, lifelong, committed pursuit of him. See, God's love is always seen in action. Always. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Pursuit, action. If I say to my wife, I love you, man, I just, I just love you. And every single day I've reminded her, hey, I love you. But like she never experienced like, you know, experienced my love in action. She never experienced that in like how I came alongside her and showed my love to her. If my love never had any display or any action in my life, but every day she heard it, what do you think the temperature of my house would be? right? Athletes spend their entire lives training and working and disciplining themselves for 10 seconds of glory in a race. Like an artist spends half their life perfecting a craft. A cook puts hours and hours in obscurity, working not for the same generic dish, but to create something that's an experience that makes somebody wow. The shopper who passes good deals for the best deal right? Like you find it everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, everywhere in our lives. What we are like, that we're not wired to pursue glory in like a haphazard fashion. We're not wired to pursue glory in a messy way. We're actually meant to pursue a unified singular glory. We place a value on something and then we pursue it according to the value that we placed on it. That's just how we're wired. We see it as worth it you know, the cook sees it as worth it. The athlete sees it as worth it. They see the prize and they line their life to get it. That's how we're wired. You can't get away from that. We perceive it, we value it, we pursue it based on the values we've placed on it. This is essential to our humanness. If we value getting skinny, then we reorient our habits around uh, diet and exercise. If you value um, a promotion at work, you reorient your work habits. If you value intimacy with your spouse, you reorient things to pursue them, right? Like it's just, it's natural. That's what we do. What does our pursuit of God say about what we value? Before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, before we are faced with all these places of what it would look like to pursue his kingdom, what does our pursuit of God say about the things that we value? The church patriarch Clement said, it will not be pleasing to God himself if we value least those things which are worth most. That's why when we start the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna hear words like a call to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Like we're gonna hear a call of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, prizing those kinds of things that last forever, 
prizing the things that are eternal, prizing the things that stir our ambitions and desires to pursue those things. There's things worth risking for. There's things worth fighting for and pursuing over. There's things worth filling yourself up with and going hard after. There's things worth striving after. And this language I'm using is riddled through the New Testament. Like it's the, it's the language of the word of God. Like Paul says, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, right? He says, for his sake, I suffered loss of all things. He counted something worth it. There was a prize he was after that oriented everything in his life accordingly. Paul tells us that he strived and reached out for this. He fought like a boxer, that he, stro- like he strived not for second place, but to win the race. He was really, really ambitious and living an ambitious life to obtain something glorious. What is it that orients your life towards something more glorious? What orients the things you're pursuing? What is it that determines what you're going hard after? Like, what is it? Do you have something that's big enough to like grab all the things and orient them accordingly for God's glory? If we're all living for God's glory, if we're hardwired to chase it, what then orients the things that you're pursuing? This could be a difficult question for us to like take head on. So let me like help us just a little bit here. If we first assign value to something and then orient ourselves to pursue it, maybe ask, what is the value and worth you're placing on those areas of your life? If you place value, if you perceive it, you value it, you pursue it, what are the values? Like what what are the motivating factors behind what you do? And an easy way to get at this is to look at some of the things that you do. Like, why do you spend money here and not here? What are the commitments or desires or hopes that you're placing in this purchase over this one? Like, why are you making these decisions? Like, what are the commitments to buy that? What what is it that wakes you up at night worrying with anxiety over that conversation or that situation? What is it that's waking you up at night? What, What are the things that you're anxious about? What are the things that get you angry? Like, why do you always get mad at that thing when it comes up? What is that? What is driving you there? What are you valuing? What are you pursuing? What are you loving in that moment? What do you love? What are the things that make you withdraw relationally? Or how often do you wish you had, like, you had something that someone else has and that just like plays in your mind? What are you fearing? And go a little deeper, what do you love? What do you want? Man, we can keep going this over and over and over, but these are the kinds of questions we're gonna face all throughout this fall. All of this, so, like all of this stuff gets addressed through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we step into these waters together, when Jesus, who is the glory of God, speaks to us about all of these things, what value will you place on orienting your life to his words and trusting him? Because all of us are gonna get bumped up against. All of us are gonna get pressed on things. The question is, is my own comfort, my own control, my own values, my own pursuit, or the values of the kingdom and his glory. What will win the day? What's gonna win the day? Whose glory are you living for? Whose glory are you pursuing? Who is the heavyweight in your life? Like who wins? Your own comfort, control, situation, all those things. Because when we talk about the glory of God, it can still feel up there. 
So this fall, we're going to kind of bring it down and ask, like, what does it look like to actually orient ourselves to those things? And even right now, as we close, that question of what do I value? Like, do I pursue the glory of God? Even still, it feels up there. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I actually get my arms around that? What's amazing about God is he didn't leave it up there. Like, he didn't leave it up to question. He didn't leave it unclear. Like, he, he didn't leave it somewhere out there that you have to figure out. Like, think of this. The God of glory didn't wait for you to move toward him. He moved toward you. God wrapped himself in flesh and blood and came in the person and work of Jesus so that you could experience his love and joy in pursuing him. That you could actually reorient your life around what he says is glorious, what he says is valuable. See, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. God, the Father's response was twofold. I have glorified it. In essence, saying, I've been glorified by the fact that, that you Jesus came and counted it worth it to lay down your life, living a perfect life, wrapping yourself in flesh to live among humanity, to show us the way. He was glorified in that. And then God says, I'm gonna glorify my name again. He, he's speaking then of the atoning death of Jesus. And we know this because Jesus explains it in the following verses. Jesus says, I'm gonna be lifted up which means I'm going to die on a cross in order to draw all people to myself. And in case you're unclear there, John wants to clear things up real, like really clear for us. John follows that up by saying, he said this to show what kind of death he was gonna die. So what does this mean for us to live for the glory of God? It means to prize Jesus. He didn't stay at a distance from us. He saw you as worth it. And he actually wanted to meet that drive, that hunger that you have, that thirst that you have for something bigger than yourself. And in his grace, he came and said, I'm it. Like, I'll live a perfect life to show you the kind of life I require. And then knowing you can never live that, knowing that you can never meet the requirement that he put on us, he died a shameful death to cover your sins so that you could be brought back into relationship with him so that your pursuit could actually have an experience of obtaining the prize, which kicks off a life of orienting your life around him, valuing his things, uh, valuing his words, valuing a pursuit that's worthy of uh, pursuing, valuing a life worthy of pursuing him. Man, and that's what we celebrate when we take communion. When we take communion, we say, God, you didn't leave things on the table. You actually came all the way and emptied yourself for us. And our response to that is that we honor you. We trust you. We put your ho our hope in you alone. We cannot earn this. And now kicks off a life where I now empty myself for you. Like Jesus invites us to trust him by saying, pick up your cross now and come pursue me, lay down your life and I'll give you everything you've wanted, everything you've desired in myself. And that's what we celebrate in communion. That's what we, uh, uh, yeah, and celebrate's the right word. We, we celebrate this. We put our joy in this. We put our hope in this. So if that's you, if, you're, uh, if you see that as your only hope, come and take communion. If you don't see that as your only hope, 
If you don't glory in the work of Jesus, then we invite you to stay in your seat and ask God what it would look like for you to do that. We have prayers in your seat backs that you could ask of God, prayers that you could work through to ask God what it would look like for you to see his glory in Jesus. Um, pray those prayers during this time. But for those of us who are taking communion, um, I'm gonna pray for us, then we're gonna come and celebrate it. <clears throat> So Jesus, <clears throat> I was struck this week in reading this passage that the very first words I read were you saying your heart was troubled. Like when you looked to the coming days and you saw the cross and what it would cost you, you, you were troubled. Like you were perfectly and fully God, but you're also wrapped in flesh and you experience fear and tr like weakness and your heart was troubled and you went to the cross anyway. You saw us as worth it. You glorified the father and went all the way for us so that when we look at the cross, our hearts aren't troubled. Our hearts are, are made full. Our hearts are uh, full of joy and gratitude and honor. So God, I pray that as we come and take communion, would you do that in our hearts? Would, you, would we see the sacrifice you've made for us? And would you like raise affection in our hearts, raise um, honor? And would you help us to see you as beautiful and immeasurably weighty in our lives? That you're worth uh, a life of pursuit. So God, help us in that. Um, would you show us your glory even now as we take communion? In your name, amen.